Well, there are two dangers to unity. One, the war ends suddenly, and everybody goes back to wanting to repair the damage done by economic war. The other is it lasts too long. People start saying the price for Ukraine is just too high. It's costing us too much. This is not, by the way, only a European problem. It's an American problem too. The war began as a surprise. It began with thinking that, well, we're going to get very deeply involved. It's going extra innings. Unity is still there. It may stay, but if this goes for a couple of years, who knows? It's important to understand why Russia began this war and why it's so important to them. Putin's lovely personality notwithstanding. Russia has been invaded in the 20th century three times, twice by the Germans. In the last invasion, they almost made it to Moscow. They didn't make it to Moscow because borders of the Soviet Union were so far west. Had they made it to Moscow, it would have been catastrophic. As it is, 27 million Russians died in that war. Right now, the border of Ukraine in the north is 263 miles from Moscow. A Russian national uh, would say, I got to have that border for the West. This can't be the case. Ukraine was never admitted to NATO because the West understood that that's kind of a lever they can't stand. The problem it became that Putin started looking at this and saying, look, the West is weak, it's divided. If I take Ukraine, it changes everything. Now, this campaign had been going on since 2000. Belarus had been essentially absorbed informally. Belarus was critical as a Western buffer. The Southern Caucasus had been, if not absorbed, certainly under Russian oversight. Recently, we've had Kazakhstan have peacekeepers put in. Ukraine was sort of the last incredibly important buffer. If Ukraine was in their hands, they did not have to fear invasion. And what they were afraid of, which is why they always talked about never letting them into NATO, was they were afraid that they would be admitted to NATO. The problem was that Ukraine had developed a national identity since then. And what was a minor matter from the Russian point of view and incomprehensible why the West couldn't just accept that, you know, we're going to have returned to this border because Ukraine was not consulted in the least and didn't want to be back under the Russian thing. They went into Ukraine thinking this was a slam dunk. This is the old Ukraine. They also felt, look, the West is not going to be concerned about this. This is not going to be something that really upsets the West. And part of this had to do with the fact that they misread the West, but also that the West constantly misrepresented themselves. The Americans, the Europeans, always kind of, particularly the Europeans, they were extremely flexible. They weren't worried about a war. They weren't about to store it into a war. And so as has a war sometimes, the offensive began and something stunning happened. And the stunning was not merely the assistance to the Ukrainians. The stunning was the economic war that was kicked off, which the Russians never expected. Kudrin, who handles financial affairs, says this has been devastating for them. It's going to take years for them to recover from it. So the economic guys wanted this to end, and the military guys have been sent in to fix it. Not easy. We don't know something crucial. We don't know what the Russian reserves are. Maybe some intelligence agency knows this, just how many men they can muster, how much equipment they can take. And we also don't understand the morale. Sending a low morale force into war is not a very promising thing. I'm, I'm certain every intelligence agency has a theory. My own view is we don't know 
this. Therefore, we don't know what's about to happen. We know that there's been a change of command. We know that this particular commander doesn't like to take orders. He's going to do it his way. And we know that he believes very strongly in counterpopulation operations. In other words, kill a lot of people. Kill them all. God will know his own. Uh, and this is the mother of that. He did that in Chechnya. He did that in Syria. And he's been sent in to do this. The real question becomes, does NATO come across the border? Because NATO also has something at stake now. If it lets Ukraine sink, the credibility of NATO among NATO members is bad here. What, what's the point of being a member of NATO if they won't come to my assistance? It's a reverse situation that NATO has to stay what they can do. There's substantial support for intervention right now. Poland, which has built up strikingly, uh, wants in. The Americans are heavily deployed there. The, the others you know, are cautious, but there is a strange conviction among them that if they have to go, they'll go. So we're facing two brinks. For example, chemical weapons are used in this conflict, which in the eyes of NATO is an unnecessary war, trivial war. Then why should we think it would be used elsewhere? If there is no response, then the Russians will read this and they frequently misread us because of the signals we send. It's okay. So let's assume, for example, we have an uprising in Poland, randomly selected and the Russians decide to invade. And Europe has to convince the Russians, above all else, that there are boundaries they can't cross. They never convinced them about Ukraine. Well, now it's NATO members. And if the Russians come away with the idea that they can use chemical weapons and there's not going to be any military response, the Russians understand war and are prepared to wage it. You know, if you're in a war and you don't know that you're going to win it, you probably want to negotiate. But the war we're talking about is not the war in Ukraine. It is the economic can that the U.S., and it was the U.S., opened up on Russia was something Russia never expected, such a devastating economic attack. It's had a devastating effect on the Russian economy, which was fairly weak before, but its effect can't be understood. You got to negotiate it without giving up on Ukraine, because now you're stuck with Ukraine, you, you can't lose Ukraine, you to try to stay there. You have to have some sort of asset that plays to the economic game. Not many of those around. Among the few is tra international trade, which also runs in the ocean, it's not just a financial matter. It runs through choke points. points. For example, Algeria ships a great deal of natural gas to uh, here. There's a shortage of that. What if the Russians try to block that through naval power? The navies haven't been called in yet. Denmark Straits is a very important passageway. The Gulf of Mexico houses three of the most important ports in the United States. The Gulf of Mexico empties out into two narrow passages, one north of Cuba, one south of Cuba. The ability of their submarines to block those are substantial. The U.S. Navy is nothing to joke at. And if the Russian Navy wants to engage the U.S. Navy, they're quite ready to have a naval battle. If you're going to throw a Hail Mary, the Hail Mary is to create economic pain on the Americans and the Europeans. The way you can do that is to block the naval passageways and hope that you can outfight the 
U.S. Navy, which they're not going to be able to, or at least convince the Americans to negotiate. Now there's a basis for negotiating. You let up on me, I let up on you. And that's going to happen. But he can't simply bleed Russia. Putin can't bleed Russia economically while struggling for Ukraine. It's just not an equal fight. He's got to end that blockade somehow. We always look at the Ukrainian war as the key. There are two keys. And the bigger key for him at this point is growing into that blockade. This incredible ability of the United States to use the dollar as a weapon. So the first thing you have to do in that sense is simply convince the Russians there is no way they're going to win in Ukraine. I don't know you do that if you don't enter. Entering the country, you're going to have to take some risks here or concede. He didn't expect to be in this tough spot himself. It'd be very, very helpful if Putin retired or found himself extremely ill and another personality could take it over. Because at this point, Putin is simply not trusted. It could be negotiated fairly easily without his personality. Peter Zine here coming to you from Colorado and today we're going to talk about NATO. Now NATO is the alliance that defends Europe against the Soviets or now the Russians and it has had a weird and winding road. Originally formed during the 1950s and originally brought in the West Germans when they were still occupied, NATO has been the foundation of all security planning that matters in the European sphere despite the efforts of some countries such as say the French, especially in the 2000s, to uh, build something parallel. The Americans have always said that NATO is the first and foremost commitment, and if you want another security agreement, that's fine. You can make it without us, but anything that is dedicated to NATO has to remain dedicated to NATO unless you just want to leave. And very few countries were ever willing to seriously consider that at all. So it's always been NATO or nothing. That doesn't mean that the alliance has always gotten along. It doesn't mean that the alliance has always agreed on everything. There are operations that technically have had the NATO stamp, but they use a coalition of the willing situation in order for other countries to abstain, still use NATO assets. And that has meant that no one has done anything in a unilateral matter, but also no one has done anything all at once. Well, now that all the Europeans are furious with the Russians, we have actually greater tightness among the Europeans, NATO and non-NATO alike, than we have seen in Europe quite literally since the Treaty of Westphalia. So this is kind of a big deal. And it is in this environment that two traditionally neutral countries, Finland and Sweden, are seriously considering joining the alliance. Now on April 13, the PMs from both Sweden and Finland got together to have a joint conference talking about their plans to discuss NATO within the country. Both Finland and Sweden make independently their decisions regarding security policy arrangements. But we do that with a clear understanding that our choices will affect not only ourselves, but our neighbours. We have to analyse the situation to see what is best for Sweden's security for the Swedish people in this new situation. And you shouldn't rush into that. It's very possible that we're going to have applications from both countries jointly looking to apply for membership well before the beginning of summer in Europe. And that would suggest that ratification could be completed not just this year, but very, very soon, probably before August. 
And right now I'd say it's probably a two in three chance that each individual country will join and that they'll join together. We can go into domestic politics, but really the issue for both countries is their long-standing stance because they haven't seen themselves as having a choice until now. So let's start with Finland because it's a simpler case. Finland, as European countries go, as countries go, is not all that old, only got its independence at the early 1900s. But it found itself as a young country butting heads with the Soviet superpower. Stalin ordered an invasion of Finland in the early days of World War II, and the Finns fought the Russians to a standstill. In some battles, there were 40 to 1 casualty ratios going against the Russians because, well, this is going to sound familiar with what's going on in Ukraine, logistical problems, morale problems, equipment problems, and the Finns were fighting for their homeland. So the Finns were on skis fighting Russians who were not, and the Finns were using grenades and tossing them into the trucks that were full of Russians. And at night, the Russians had a choice between freezing to death or lighting a campfire so that these Finnish snipers could pick them off. It all was fun and games until the snow melted. And then Stalin launched a second phase of the invasion, and the Finns very quickly sued for peace and gave Stalin everything that he had asked for, and then some. And so about a quarter of the population of Finland ended up having to physically relocate from now conquered lands and move into what is today recognized as the country of Finland. Because of that Syrian experience and because Stalin actually respected the Finns, Finland was allowed to go through a process of neutralization that is now known today as Finlandization. And the idea is that Finland can decide anything it wants to about its economic system and its political system, but on all security matters, the Soviet Union had a hard veto. So Finland, despite wanting to, never joined NATO. That was part of the post-World War II deal. Well, now from the Finns' point of view, the Soviet bear is long gone. And while the Russians are nowhere even close to the strength that the Soviet Union had, we now have a Russian system that is acting more aggressively than even Stalin did. So from their point of view, this change in the defensive and offensive posture of the Russian state, combined with its lack of capacity, provides both the impetus and the willingness of the Finns to consider a shift. The last poll I saw suggested that about two-thirds of Finns supported membership. That's almost double what it was less than a year ago. And the number is probably going up with each uncovering of a war crime in Ukraine. So Finland specifically, I'd say it's a shoe-in. Militarily capable, very competent. Yes, they've got a long border, 1,300 kilometers, with the Russians. But it's not like the Russians can even consider launching a two-front war here. So if the Finns did apply, they would be approved in weeks, if not days, and we'd probably have token forces, at least from the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, and France, and Turkey, you know, the major powers within NATO, deploy to Finland to underline during the transition process that this is now an alliance member. So that's, that's Finland. Sweden is a little weird. So Sweden used to be a superpower. If you go back a half a millennia, there was a time when Sweden was the country that had the geography that you really wanted. All the European countries were banging against each other because they were right on each other's faces and there was no way you could develop without threatening someone. But Sweden was the, on the other side of the Skagerrak and the Bay of Bothnia and the Baltic Sea in general, and so it controlled what we now consider Scandinavia, specifically what is today Norway and Finland, and was insulated from everybody else. 
So once the Swedes were able to consolidate power in that area, they could then project power south and into Europe proper, and they were a major, major player, and for a while, the most powerful European country. It didn't last. As technologies evolved, especially in things like firearms, uh, the Swedes found themselves overextended and exposed to larger populations that were becoming more and more consolidated. And in a series of conflicts, starting with the Thirty Years' War and ultimately culminating in the Napoleonic Wars, the Swedes faced a series of setbacks and strategic defeats until ultimately they retreated back to what we now know as Sweden today. That meant they're a little gun-shy. The Swedes are armed. They're not prickly, they're prepared. But they have gone out of their way for the last two centuries to avoid any sort of entanglement in someone else's war or someone else's alliance. But once again, the situation has changed. Under the Soviet period, Sweden very nearly got a nuclear deterrent. But the Non-Proliferation Treaty ultimately convinced Sweden that it wasn't necessary. But now that the Russians have withdrawn from most strategic arms reduction talks, the Swedes have a very simple choice they have to make. One, do they go nuclear? Or two, do they join the coalition that all of their Nordic and Scandinavian family members are already a part of? Because Iceland, Norway, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Denmark, they're all already in NATO. And if the Finns join, the Swedes will be the last ones out. And as the Finnish and the Swedish prime ministers were saying, there are long-term and short-term considerations. There are pros and cons for whatever they do. But at the end of the day, Russia has changed. And at the end of the day, the decisions that now most affect Swedish security are not made in Stockholm. They're made in NATO countries. And the only way that Sweden can reliably influence that decision-making process is to join. Sweden, like Finland, competent. Sweden, like Finland, an excellent defense establishment. If they applied to join, they would be ushered in a matter of days and weeks. We're going to know very, very soon. So that just leaves the question of what the Russians are going to do. Not a lot. The Russians can't fight a two-front war right now. It's certainly not with the forces they've deployed, not with the record of logistics. Also, the Finns, and especially the Swedes, have significantly better air power than anything that the Russians have demonstrated so far. And since the Russians like to fight their wars at the end of rail lines, you get a few airstrikes into Russia proper, you blow up the, a few bridges and some rail lines, and, and that's that. So I don't see the Russians doing anything more than growl at this point. The real fight is going to stay in Ukraine. And as long as we don't have regular NATO forces in Ukraine during the war, I don't think the Russians are going to escalate at least not without a significant change in circumstance, and we haven't seen anything like that in the first six weeks. Russia has been an energy superpower. Putin said he didn't like the term, but he liked the money and the political clout. But I think Russia's days as an energy superpower are now receding. The pressure since what's happened the last two weeks is really added to the momentum, not for sanctions that will play out in two years from now, but sanctions much more quickly, because Putin is earning a lot of money from oil and gas right now. From Europe alone, if you annualize from where he is today, it'd be like $250 billion, just Europe. And Europe's only about half of his oil sales. 
It's a big deal because oil and gas together are around 40% of the total Russian budget uh, and also obviously foreign trade. So it would be a big hit. And I think that's why you see right now the Ukrainian government is really leading the campaign to get people to self-sanction and ultimately to get to sanctions. And we see that working. We see dock workers refusing to unload Russian oil, banks not writing letters of credit. So it's going to get more and more difficult for Russian oil anyway. And I think the EU is getting closer to some outright ban. India is saying we want to buy Russian oil, particularly because we can get it at a big discount and we can pay in rupees, not in dollars. Only some of that oil will get sold. I think it will be physical logistical issues. There will be issues about being able to get insurance for tankers and a host of other things that will impede it. So some of it will get sold, but some of it won't. And by the way, it'll be sold at a big discount. China is not totally dependent. It gets a lot of oil from Russia. It gets a lot of oil from the Middle East. I think there's very little influence on China to get them to buy less oil. I think there's going to be a lot of diplomacy with India because, of course, India has also gotten closer to the United States on this group of countries that are sort of around China with Australia and uh, Japan. At the root of our partnership is a deep connection between our people, ties of family, of friendship, and of shared values. And Biden just had a phone call with Modi where you can be sure that this would have been one of the topics. His ask would be on the energy front, which is not to pick up slack on, on Russian oil and to talk about all the areas where the U.S. and India can collaborate. I spoke several times on the phone to the presidents of both Ukraine and Russia. I not only appealed for peace, but also suggested that there be direct talks between President Putin and the president of Ukraine. India, of course, has a long historic relationship with Russia. And unlike its relationship with China, which is fraught with tension, it's been a partnership and a substantial part of the Indian army is uh, equipped with Russian armaments. Uh, what I hear from Indians, they say, well, the U.S. is, some, is a fickle friend and Russia has been our long-term friend. So I think India is trying to balance between the two. Well, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was basically created after the 1970s oil crises so that you were prepared for an emergency, a disruption. And we are looking at a disruption in world energy right now, particularly as this war goes on. It could be more serious than that of the 1970s because it involves not only oil, natural gas and coal. It also involves the two nuclear superpowers. So using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I think it was a really smart idea to use it at scale. Today, I'm authorizing the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months, over 180 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It gets a lot of oil into the market, helps reduce the potential shortage, because it was a very tight market anyway going into the crisis. It's a big development. The other big development that's affecting the oil market right now is the resurgence of COVID in China, which is taking Chinese oil demand down. And you see the oil price inching downward because of COVID in China, as well as the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We have certainly seen that change starting around November when the Biden administration actually started calling for more oil and gas production. Because right now, if it was not for the shale revolution in the United States, were it not for the fact that the U.S. is going to be the world's largest exporter of LNG, Europe would be in a much worse situation. And so I think there's been a grudging recognition that this is a great strategic asset for the United States and a great strategic asset for Europe and increasing production. 
put away those old slogans like price gouging, which really don't connect to what's happening. When you're in a crisis, when you're in a wartime, and this is a wartime, you need close collaboration between government and the companies in order to manage the complex logistics and supply chains that keep 100 million barrels a day of oil flowing around the world. Political rhetoric is not what you need. What you need is cooperation. Part of the solution to it does involve U.S. oil and gas production, because otherwise, you know, you could see what happened in the election in France, the, the, the first round with Marine Le Pen. If you have turmoil and shortage and prices shooting up, then this coalition to deal with Putin's war in Ukraine can really erode. In this year, U.S. oil production could increase by a million barrels a day, which is more than the entire increase in all the rest of the world. That would be a significant factor that Europe, as well as other countries, now regard U.S. LNG as a source of stability and security. But you can't build these things overnight. Pipelines take time. LNG facilities take time. Uh, Chancellor Schultz has talked in his Zeitenwende, his change of era, that Germany is now going to build receiving terminals for LNG. But, you know, it'll take two or three years to get those built. But that's to so that to cut down on imports of Russian gas and be able to import LNG, some of which will come from the United States. Zeitenwende means a change of errors, and I think it is a change of, of errors. Germany has pursued uh, a sense of interdependence with Russia, and I think the trade that Germany had with Russia and that built up with Russia actually helped to erode and uh, with the Soviet Union helped to bring down the Iron Curtain. Germany has now said, we're through. We don't want to be uh, dependent upon Russia anymore. It's not a reliable supplier. It's an unwanted supplier. And I think that is more broadly affecting the overall economic relations. Germany is much more connected to Russia, as are other European countries, than the United States because of proximity. Uh, they're saying, we're going to change and we're going to go in a different direction. We're going to increase our defense spending. We're going to strengthen NATO. This is all a big change. One of the many miscalculations Putin has made, he wanted to undermine NATO. What he's done is reinvigorated uh, NATO, and he's turned Germany in a very different direction because we're looking not only at an energy crisis, but a food crisis. And uh, Marine Le Pen has very cleverly pursued a campaign based on economic issues, uh, less on immigration. And of course, she's touched people's pocketbooks. I mean, she said that she's against NATO. That's why you have to take a holistic view to this crisis and not look at it in different pieces. I think it's very much on the minds of both Democrats and Republicans looking at the November election. If you're a, a nurse or a teacher and you're driving 25 miles a day to work, these costs really hurt. You know, so they are very politically significant. Gets you back again to the question to manage this in a sensible way. Obviously, in, in Europe, the prices because of tax are actually a lot higher. And that is a very big political factor there. So I think around the world, we're going to see the politics of nations roiled by energy prices, and by the way, that other crisis, food prices. You know, you have to add up a lot of different things. You use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, you get this kind of cooperation I've talked about between government and industry to manage the logistics. Obviously, some more oil from the Middle East would be helpful, whether we'll have some kind of demand restraint or, or people just changing behavior, but all of those things come together. This is a very tight spot that we're in right now. 30% of world wheat comes, exports come from 
Ukraine and, and, and Russia, and a lot of that is just stopped. The Ukrainians can't use their ports, the, the, the crops will rot. It, egg, they're a major exporter of eggs. You go down the list, and something else that people don't realize, but if you look at all the costs of food, about 70% of the cost of food actually is energy from fertilizer, from tractors, from trucks to move it. And so all those energy costs also feed into the price of food. And the Middle East is particularly dependent upon wheat from Russia and Ukraine. And of course, it was high food prices that set off the Arab Spring in 2011, very much on the minds of leaders in that part of the world. Uh, some people from Washington went down to Caracas to see more oil. I think they ought to also go to Calgary in Canada and get some more oil, because I think the Canadians could help us out too, but they've been sort of forgotten. China is the big, that's the big question. That's a huge geopolitical question for the 21st century is U.S.-Chinese relations. And generally, they're going in, in the wrong direction. And that's really the real threat. So how to manage those relations. And given that the politics of the U.S. is increasingly antagonistic to China, and China is certainly increasingly antagonistic to the United States, particularly the Germans made the decision over a weekend to shut down their nuclear power, which provided, I think, about 20% of the electricity. So they're using more gas, including Russian gas, to produce electricity. And they're shutting down at the end of the year their last three nuclear power plants. But I think we're seeing, we've seen a real turnaround on nuclear power. President Macron came into office saying that he was going to cut back on French nuclear, which provides about 80% of the electricity. He's now said they're going to build six new reactors and maybe another eight. Britain has just come out with a new energy security doctrine that also includes more nuclear. There is a turn on uh, nuclear power going on right now, seeing it as part of the mix, both for security and also for energy transition issues. And it is by far the largest release of our, net, of our national reserve in our history. It will provide historic amount of supply for a historic amount of time, a six-month bridge to the fall. And we'll use the revenue from selling the oil now to restock the strategic petroleum reserve when prices are lower. 